1: Discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On
0: these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. We are today talking to Nancy Johnson, the author of The Kindest Lie. Nancy is a native of Chicago's South Side. She worked for more than a decade as an Emmy-nominated, award-winning television journalist at CBS and ABC affiliates in markets nationwide. Her debut novel, The Kindest Lie, has been named one of the most anticipated books of 2021 by Marie Claire and Pop Sugar. Nancy's work has been published in O, the Oprah magazine, and has received support from the Hurston Wright Foundation, Tin House, and the Kim fiction. A graduate of Northwestern University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Nancy lives in downtown Chicago and manages brand communications for a large nonprofit. The Kindest Lie is her first novel. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women. Thank you. It's good to be here. We'd love if you
2: tell us a little bit about The Kindest Lie. Sure. So The Kindest Lie is a story of family, love, sacrifice, all of it at the intersection of race and class at the dawn of the Obama era. And the books, centers on a woman named Ruth Tuttle. She's a very successful Black Ivy League educated engineer in Chicago. She's definitely on the come up. She's got a great husband, great life, new house, all this, but she's been harboring this big secret. She gave birth to a baby when she was just 17 years old, and she left him behind in the dying Indiana factory town where she grew up. And so she's got to reconcile with her past. And so she returns to Ganton where she grew up. And of course, when she gets back there, nothing is the same as she Remembers. The auto plant that was the beating heart of the town is now closed, and a lot of the people she knows are out of work. She reunites with her grandmother and her brother. She hasn't seen them in many years, and they've been keeping some secrets from her as well. And then she meets and forms this unlikely connection with a young white boy nicknamed Midnight, who's mired in the very poverty that she managed to escape. And so when the two of them get together, you've got the forces of race and class that put them on this collision course, and it ups ends both of their lives. That was a great summary,
1: and we're going to talk about a lot of those things. We loved The Kindest Lie, but we want to start here. We at Pop Fiction Women talk about complicated women, which to us just means real, three-dimensional human beings with contradictions and conflict. Our tagline is, we're complicated, which means we love to discuss women in fiction that have flaws or imperfections, who don't always make the best choices, but who we relate to nonetheless. And Ruth certainly qualifies, so we'd love to hear more. about your development of Ruth, who she is, what inspired her, and maybe any
2: challenges you faced when writing her character? I mean, well, the entire book was inspired by the events of 2008 when Barack Obama was elected president. And all these people said, we've now entered a post-racial era because we had a Black president. And I knew that was not the case. That was obviously a fallacy. And I saw this deep divide between Black and white America, you know, on my social media feed during that campaign. And Obama's second term is when I was thinking back to what happened in in his campaign and the first term of his presidency. And that's how I got the idea of trying to bring to life people from these different parts of America that just are never seeming to meet and talk to each other. And so I thought of who would be the characters who could inhabit that kind of a world. And I thought about a professional Black woman. I thought about myself. Thinking about her as like Ruth 2.0 and myself as Nancy <laughs> 2.0 in some ways. It's like when you're Black in America, you're living this dual identity. And I wanted to portray a woman like that, this successful Ivy League educated woman. And yet, she feels like she has to leave her community behind. And there's this division between who she is when she walks into her job as an engineer or when she moves through the world, kind of in this fancy life that she's created for herself in Chicago versus who she is or who she used to be, she thinks, when she was growing up in small-town Ganton, Indiana. That's really what I wanted. And so that's how I thought about Ruth as a woman who is very complicated because of the dual identities and this these worlds that she's got to straddle. And so that's really what I wanted in terms of creating her, was showing the the two parts of her. And she thinks she can escape the one part, but she really can't because they're intertwined. It's all part of defining who she is. That's what makes Ruth so specific, but also universal. I think a
0: lot of people struggle with this idea of the dual identity. And so many times it also is wrapped up in home, your family, who they expect you to be, and then also who you are out in the world. So that's universal, but it's also so specific to race and class and the
2: experiences you've infused her with. Because it's also about expectations. That's a big part of what defines Ruth is, I mean, she is just dogged, I think, by the expectations patients that have been put on her and she can't let that go. And even when she goes back to her hometown, to Ganton and to her family, you can kind of see how in some ways she's like a little girl again when she goes back. And that's the way I feel when I go and visit my mom, you know, <laughs> even though I'm now 50 years old and I go home, it's like I'm a little girl again.
0: During this pandemic, we're living in Manhattan, but we've been displaced to my hometown, a very small town on the North Fork of Long Island and very close to my parents. And I feel it. I feel it. (laughs) So, recently on the podcast, we've been talking a lot about the spectrum of secrets, the kinds that are protective. We watched this rom com, Broken Hearts Gallery, and Lucy has one that's a good secret. It's kind of very protective. And then Ellen Hildebrand's novel, 28 Summers, which is really her denying an authentic part of herself. And that becomes toxic and destructive. And that's more along the lines of Ruth's secret. It threatens to completely upend the life she's built. And in the novel, you write, Ruth wondered if every woman harbored a secret tucked away in her heart, a cross she carried all
1: alone. Oh, and I love that line. And it's not just Ruth, though. I mean, many of your characters, as you said, have secrets. One of the consistent threads is that sometimes we lie or hide things for what we believe to be good reasons, right? Mm-hmm. To
2: protect. That's the lie. <laughs> that
1: is. You're getting to my point. Yes, the title. To protect, to help, to advance the lives of people we love. We tell lies. As often, right, with the best intentions. And this book explores, is that okay? Is the price ever too high? And we'd love to hear more about what made you want to explore these complicated questions about honesty and how you came up with the perfect title for this book,
2: Kindest Lie. I just think that is such a universal that so many of us, we all have secrets or parts of ourselves that we don't reveal. And there are also things that we keep secret or that we lie about even to ourselves that we don't want to admit, but we have to go forward and to survive and to live the life we want to live. We do things to get through, but we're keeping a lot of things from ourselves and from the people around us. And The Kindest Lie, it works as a title on several levels. One is just, as you said, Kate, you know, you've got Ruth who has really lied to herself that she can untether herself from her past and that she can really walk away from her baby and live a a normal life and that she can close a door on that and then it's only when her husband decides it's time to start having kids that that pandora's box is open again and and she's got to face the lies of her past and then you've got mama who i think is just such an interesting Mm -hmm. character because she is one who keeps a lot of secrets and she tells a lot of lies but she does it out of love for her grandchildren because she does want what's best for them and then on an even larger level i was thinking about america yeah. and america tells itself plenty of plenty of lies about how decent and about how honorable It is, And I wanted to explore that as well. And I think that was the biggest lie that I thought of when um, telling the story of this book, because even though it's a family story, it's very small, intimate, specific to these particular families that you see in the book. It's also telling the story of America. As well, why are we really post-racial and those kinds of things? You know, have we really gotten over the wounds, the 400-plus year wounds of slavery and racism in America? And the answer is no. The opening chapters of this book are just incredible, so vivid, so
0: complex, but also so relatable. You paint such a wonderful picture for us. But this is the end, and Ruth has been celebrating Obama's inauguration, and there's a lot of excitement in the air, and there is a lot to be hopeful about. But Ruth knows that it's more than that. And she says at the bottom of page 21, but no one wanted to be practical in the bubble of this special night. As hedonistic and heady as it was, to Ruth, it still felt fragile and new. Like if you pulled the thread of a coat button, it would surely unravel until the button fell off. Yet no one else seemed to be consumed with caution. And so they partied the night away in white, embodying the title of the famous Lorraine Hansberry play, To Be Young, Gifted, and Black. With a brother on his way to the White House, they had state-sanctioned permission to dream. Yeah, so good. The setup is just so captivating and you really capture a lot there. Now, in real life, here we are many years later on the verge of having just had Joe Biden's inauguration, which got dicey for a minute there. With Obama, I think there was a hope for representation, for advancement. I'm cautiously optimistic to say there's a hope now as well, certainly from the previous administration, the change. But I think Ruth would be happier about in some ways, right? It's like, okay, we're going to do the work now,
2: right? Exactly. But I think it's also a cautionary tale too. That's why I look at it. It's just so interesting to have written this book so long ago and to now see where we are. Like it's mirroring each other, what's happening with the Biden-Harris administration coming in. We're you know inaugurating and we're bringing in this new feeling of hope and progress. And that's, to me, it's a very similar feeling to what we had in 2008 when we were so hopeful about Obama. But it does show you how fragile that can be. And there, and also just the circumstances are so similar. I mean, we were going through the Great Recession in 2008. And now because of the pandemic, people are, again, feeling financial strain, their livelihoods are at risk. And in both cases, I think when you're going through the financial pressure, it exacerbates racial tensions. There are so many parallels. And I think just like in 2008, people were putting all their hope in one man to yeah. fix things and to represent progress. I guess I hope that we're not going to necessarily do that in the same way with Biden and Harris. And that's really up to all of us, I think, to do the work and to be really realistic and go into it eyes wide open and not have this false sense of hope. Yeah. The timing is of this book
0: coming out after, I mean, we couldn't have, even between November and January, you could not have guessed. It's perfect. It's perfect timing. Yes. To have these discussions, to look at this and say, we all had very blind, optimistic hope in 2008. And we can live with hope and also understand it's time to roll up your sleeves and do more work than we thought it was just going to fix itself in 2008.
2: Yeah. And also the racial violence that we saw, I mean, just this past year and dealing with all the anti-racism stuff and dealing with um, you know, the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. And then you're comparing that to their racial violence in Obama's administration with Trayvon Martin and the Charleston, South Carolina church shooting. And you know what I mean? Just so many of these parallels that you see between the two time periods. It's uncanny.
1: So I do want to shift gears a little and talk about family and motherhood, because as you said, those are big themes in this book as well. Through the two main characters, Ruth and Midnight, your novel explores how we define family and examines the very different and complex ways a family can look. Ruth and her brother didn't know their own parents. They were raised by their grandparents. After the loss of his mother, Midnight is now struggling to find a true home with his grandmother, his aunt, and his biological father. And now, as you said, Ruth is facing the thought of starting her own family with her husband and all of these questions she's suppressed about the child she gave away and what it means to be a mother are boiling up to the surface. Ruth and an 11-year-old Midnight seem like unlikely choices to me for dual narrators. So I'd (laughs) love to hear how you chose them to explore these bigger issues of family and motherhood.
2: When I thought of the story, I knew I wanted to deal with the motherhood issue and this woman who walked away from a child to pursue her career and her dreams. And initially, I had her connecting with a Black boy. But then I decided to make Midnight White just because I wanted to explore those issues of the divide between Black and white America. So I was like, I really want to get in the head of a white child and a white family and kind of see what that's like. Because I'm asking people to have difficult conversations and to transcend some of these barriers. And so I thought maybe I need to do that as well in um, the narrative that I craft. But I thought it was interesting to have Ruth and Midnight because they are seemingly so opposite, you know, that she's a woman, she's Black, she's well-educated, she's successful, you know, and then you've got Midnight and he's poor, he's 11 years old, so difference in age, race, all of it. But yet they both seem to need the same things. So there was this commonality and universality, I think, there between the two of them. They're both searching for family connection. They both want to belong. They both want to be loved. They're both misunderstood. And so I thought, wow, they really do feel something in each other. But even in spite of that, you've got race and class and those some of these issues still prevent them from truly connecting in the deepest of ways. Yet they are able to help each other and fulfill something in each other. I'm guessing
0: Midnight came to you much later on, or you knew you wanted a child's perspective? I did
2: know I wanted a child perspective, but at first it was just going to be a Black child. But then once I started thinking about what I really wanted to do, I talk a lot to white writers who want to write diverse characters or write Black characters. And they're like, oh, should I do it? Should I not do it? And you know, I talk about the responsibility that comes with that. Why are you the one to tell that story? And so people sometimes ask me about writing a a white boy, because I've never been white and I've never been a boy before but i was bullied as a kid and i you know kind of experienced some of the same things of feeling like i was on the outside of things Mm. and so i was able to bring that perspective to midnight and so in many ways i felt closest to his character because i was able to you know embody some of the emotions you know that i gave him and i understood him on a certain level and also being black in america i'm fluent in whiteness of course I appreciate that you put that kind of thought and effort
0: into it, but it is not the same as trying to write from the other way around, from a right. minority right. perspective. So that's incredible. We also want to talk about your path from TV journalist to author. Mm-hmm. In your acknowledgements, you reference the turbulent tides of this journey to publication. And thank your literary agent for plucking you out of the Twitter slush pile. Okay, <laughs> That's a story we need to hear first. Uh,
2: yeah. So it took me about six years to write the kind this lie. You know, when you write a book for the first time, you don't know when the book is ready. I had Caroline Levitt did a manuscript critique for me and it was great, but she was the only one I had look at it. And so I just made some pretty minor revisions and I started queering agents right away. And I got lots of rejections, including rejections from Danielle Bukowski of Sterling Lord Literistic. This was in 2017 that she rejected. So that's part of the turbulent tides is just going through all of the rejection, you know, queering so many agents and hearing no over and over again. And of course I sent her a thank you email to say I really appreciate considering my work Thanks for, you know, your notes on what could have been improved. I said, I plan to revise the book. And she emailed back and said, if you do revise, you know, send it to me again. And so fast forward two years later, I got five beta readers to critique. I went through multiple workshops and I submitted to her again and she offered representation. And so, yeah, so that's how we
0: connected. I mean, you obviously had a successful, strong career as a journalist. What made you want to say, let me go back to the beginning where I know nothing? about how to write
2: fiction and start here. I was a television news reporter for 11 years in various markets around the country, covered a lot of big stories. One of the most memorable was the 2000 election recount between Bush and Gore. Yeah, so that was a big national story. And then just also the everyday story as a general assignment reporter. And I loved it, you know, kind of having a window into so many different worlds as a journalist. But it kind of started turning into if it bleeds, it leads, we would say, you know. And so like I'd be on a human interest story, which is those were the ones, the features that I loved the most. And I'd be on that. And then the pagers would go off or the scanners and I'm dating myself with the pagers. And then they would be like, oh, there's a homicide, you know, a couple counties over, you got to go do that. And I'd have to drop a story I was really interested in. And and so I kind of got tired of doing stories that were making news. I wanted to tell stories that were of my own imagination. And so that's why I got out of it eventually. But it was great training ground because of curiosity and being able to write for the ear. But yeah, so that's why I got out of it. But still, I'm, you know, I'm single, I need to pay the bills. So that's why I have a day job in corporate communication communications and that, you know, supports my writing habit.
1: I think this is going to be more than a habit based on the reaction to this. So after getting picked out of the slush pile, I'm hoping that you have some belief in the hands of fate or the universe. We, as Corinne said, are both lawyers. And one of the ways we try to escape our logical analytic sides and connect to our sort of woo-woo intuitive side is through astrology. So we ask all our authors, what's your sign and do you relate to it?
2: I don't know a lot about my sign. Maybe you can tell me, but I'm an Aquarius. February 18th is my birthday. Yeah, I'm on the cusp between Aquarius and Pisces. My daughter is February 19th. Oh, okay. All right, so tell me about myself and my future. I'm a relational person, so I don't
0: know a lot about each particular sign, but I do know that Aquarius is an Aries. I'm an Aries. They get along very well. They work well together. And I like that. That is good. That's the fun stuff to me is like, why is this person rubbing me the wrong way? Oh, you know, they're an earth sign. Earth extinguishes fire. So that's not going to work. But I like to think of it on a relational level. And really, I just am a control freak. And when I can pretend even for a minute that this is, something bigger than me, I feel a little better about my life.
1: <laughs> I have a friend who's an Aquarius, and I know that they're very sort of original thinkers, kind of rebellious, like don't always just follow along. They're kind of looking at things from a different perspective a lot. Yeah. So that's that's me. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, we also like to ask our authors, who are the complicated women that inspire you? This can be a character in a fiction or a real-life woman. I know we've read that Toni Morrison is your greatest literary inspiration, so if you want to talk about
2: her or anyone else
0: that inspires you professionally or personally.
2: Yeah, I would say for sure. Toni Morrison has been a big inspiration. I first read Toni Morrison when I was in college at Northwestern University, and I couldn't get into it at all because I just wasn't ready. It just seemed so complex and the text so dense. But it was after college that I returned to her work and really loved it. And my favorite is actually The Bluest Eye, which was her Mm -hmm. first. You know, I mean, I just love the story. And I still think about the main character, Piccola Breedlove, all the time. And so with Toni Morrison, so much of the way she approaches narrative has influenced the way I want to approach writing, because I remember in reading The Bluest Eye, she's Started off like in the very beginning of that book, telling you, Nikola Breedlove had a baby by her father. You know, she tells you that in the beginning and she says, That's what happened. But I'm going to now talk about how it happened, why it happened. And so I used a similar technique in my book, In the Kindest Lie, with telling you right away that Ruth had a baby. Right. That's the secret that she's been keeping. And then after that, you see what the repercussions of it are. And so I think just from the way of structuring a story, I've learned so much. Just on the sentence level, I could never begin to write like a Toni Morrison, but I admire it so much. And then just as a Black writer, she gives me so much confidence. So I remember her being interviewed by a white interviewer and he asked her, when are you going to start to write white characters and have those at the center of your books? And she's like, would you ever ask a white author when you're going to have black characters in his book? And she said, you are assuming that I'm not in the mainstream and I am in the mainstream. Just that, the swagger that she has, I want to embody that. I admire her as a writer and as a human being. I love that. Well, can we talk about you as a writer? What
0: your process is like for writing and what you focus in on? Are you one of those people that has to revise
1: as they go? Or do you get a whole first draft down? Or Well, and also since you have
2: a day job, I would love to hear how people work that in. You always hear about writers being either plotters or pantsers. You know, they plot everything out or they do it by the seat of their pants. I'm definitely a pantser. I don't plot out because I, I think the characters speak to me and they tell me where they want to go because I don't know from the beginning, I have an idea, but I don't really know where they're going to go. And so the story just continues to evolve as I write it. And so that's my approach. Um, And I definitely revise. And so I have to read what I wrote the day before when I sit down to write, you know, and pick up from there. Just in terms of habit, pre-pandemic, I was writing in Starbucks or some other coffee shop. I like to do that. and It doesn't bother me like the whir of the like a cappuccino machine or people talking. And then with the current job I have when we were going into the office, I have a long driving commute. And so I'm not able to write because I'm driving. And it's so funny that the ideas for me, like ideas for dialogue or specific pieces of exposition, they come to me all the time when I'm on the interstate. <laughs> so I use the voice memo function on my phone. I pull that out and I just start talking into it. Because Sometimes when I'm like, oh, I'll remember by the time I get to work, I lose it. It's gone. Big fan of that
1: voice recorder too, because I will forget it in the next 30 seconds if I don't get that down. <laughs>
2: That's true. But it is hard to juggle a day job because I have a day job where I'm writing a lot as well, writing speeches and video scripts and annual reports and all that. So it takes up some of the creative energy. I would work with an accountability partner in writing this book and she would call me at 6 30. We talk for a few minutes about what we're gonna do and we would write for like two hours. And at the end of the two hour period, I call her back and then we say, here's what I accomplished in the two hour period. So what
1: are you loving right now? We love to hear from our authors about maybe um, what books or TV shows or things that they're watching or listening to.
2: I'm behind on all the TV shows. Last night, I just started Queen's Gambit because everybody had been recommending that to me. I had read a review of it where I heard that, and I'm kind of looking for this now, which I probably shouldn't have read that beforehand. You know, it's <laughs> swaying my opinion. But the Black girl character, who's a friend, mm-hmm. the main character, just the oh, fact yeah. that there was some critique that she didn't have as much agency and they weren't really bringing out her full backstory and that she may have just been there kind of as a sidekick to the main white Mm. character. So those are the things that are clouding my thoughts as I'm watching it, but I'm still enjoying it and trying not to think about that too much because I'm really getting into it. But we'll see once I've finished the entire series, I'll let you know. So that's something to think about. In terms of books, one that I'm reading right now is The Other Black Girl. I have an advanced copy. The Other Black Girl by Zakia Delilah Harris. So that's a book that's getting a ton of buzz. It's coming out this summer that I think you'll be hearing a lot about and got a book deal through like a huge auction and all that. And so it's a thriller based in the publishing industry. You've got a black woman editorial assistant at a publishing house, big publishing house. And she's kind of like wanting another, you know, she's the only black person really there. And then another black girl shows up and oh, another black girl. It's great at first. And then until it's not great, it turns ugly and it's a thriller and it's compared to the movie get out and the devil wears Prada. So that's one to put on your radar I'm also have read Waiting for the Night Song, which came out this month by Julie Carrick Dalton that deals with female friendship, childhood secrets, climate change, immigration, a lot of big issues, kind of like my book does. And then the other one that I've read recently, the third one I'll say is The Lost Apothecary by Sarah Penner. That one releases in March. And so that one is 18th century London and present day, two timelines. So you've got an apothecary, you know, this woman who's mixing up poisons and she's giving them to women in 18th century London who've been wronged by the men in their lives and seeking revenge.
0: Did I see that you had written something for Writer Unboxed? I do
2: write for Writer Unboxed, yeah.
0: I saw your most recent post and a lot about community and how hard that is to find in the writing. World. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because
2: I thought it so inspiring. Yeah, yeah. And I was getting advice about that from other published authors too. Because when you're writing, it's such a solitary activity. You know, you're sitting alone in your home or in your, you know, among people in the coffee shop, but you're still alone. And the community is just unbelievable. And I've been plugged in a lot over the years with the writing community. I'm in many writing organizations and I now have an accountability trio with two other writers and so we call and talk to each other every Sunday night, just about ups and downs of the secret dreams we have. Oh, I'd love to be on that most anticipated list and I didn't get on there. Or did you read your Goodreads reviews? You know you're not supposed to. You know, what happened for you? Oh, here's what's going on with me. And we just support each other, critique each other's work. So that sense of community is just unbelievable. And I talked before about Caroline Levitt and she She's become a literary fairy godmother to me. You know? Know. And so that's the community I built way back then in 2017. Fast forward to when I got a book deal. She said, oh, I know someone who would absolutely love this book. And she tweeted Jodi Picoult. And so then Jodi immediately pre-ordered it. I asked her if she would want to read an advanced copy. She did. Then she blurbed it. And so her words of praise are on the front cover now of my book. That speaks to the literary community, the generosity, and just how we support each other.
0: I love that because a lot of times I hear about networking and you should be in front of people and those people can help you get success. But this sounds much more vital to me—the people yeah. who help you stay grounded, mentally healthy, about all because it's a crazy process. Yeah. Well, one of those people I know, who's at least side part of your community, is Christy Tate, who is a very very good friend of mine, and she had recommended your book to me very early on. Yeah, yeah. saying your praises too. As you know, her book group came really? out a few months ago, and I went and got her a cake with her book cover on it from
1: brown sugar bakery there's wonderful praise for corinne in Christie's acknowledgments it's a really big shout out so
2: yeah, i'll have to go back and look for her name in there
0: well the kindest lie will be out when this episode comes out we're very excited i think this is going to be received really well not just because it's beautiful and well written but because it's really important it's a conversation starter that's relatable and digestible and I think will come from a really good
2: place. I'm really excited for you. Oh, thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful conversation, too.
1: Before we go, Nancy, tell our listeners where they can find you, Twitter,
2: Instagram, Facebook, your website. Sure, sure. On Facebook, uh, it's Nancy Johnson, author. And then I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Nancy J author. Yeah. And then my website is nancyjohnson.net. So you can find me any of those places. I'm always happy to zoom in to book clubs to talk about The Kindest Lie as well. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure we want to let you know we've
1: launched a Patreon page where supporters can receive perks like bonus episodes and exclusive content.
0: Because Pop Fiction Women is our passion project, a place where we give women space to show up and offer in-depth analysis in the ways we're used to hearing
1: about male creators and their characters. We delve into creativity and psychology with a dash of astrology. And we have so much fun doing it. Just two friends breaking down books, movies, and shows like Normal People, bag, and I May Destroy You. Every single aspect of this podcast, we do ourselves,
0: from the preparation to the recording, from the editing to the social media promotion. So we're adding a Patreon platform because we want to keep making the show you love and hopefully expand it even further.
1: So please consider becoming one of our most complicated fans and contributing on Patreon.
0: To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash pop fiction women.
1: This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate.
0: If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media.
1: Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at PopFictionWomen or on Twitter at Pop underscore Women.
0: For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to PopFictionWomen.com and keep it complicated.